Hello and welcome to Emergency on Planet Earth with me, Mary Cray. Everything we do to the planet, we do to ourselves. And as the planet heats up, that presents risks to our health. We've exploited our land, we've fished too much in our seas, and we're pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, destabilising our planet. The Earth is our only home. We are dominating the environment and putting the life support systems that we rely on, like clean air, decent water and land, under enormous pressure. The World Health Organization estimates that a quarter of death and disease globally is linked to environmental hazards from pollution, to the spread of disease, declining nutrition and mental health problems. In this episode, I've been finding out just how important the state of the planet's health is for our own health. Apologies for the noise, we had to record this one on the go in a very busy House of Commons. I started by asking Professor of Environmental Change and Public Health at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, Sir Andy Haynes, what do we mean when we talk about planetary health? So Andy, can we start with you? Can you just tell my listeners what is planetary health and why does it matter? Well, planetary health really summarises the fact that we're now in a new geological epoch. We're now in an epoch when human beings are transforming the global landscape. So planetary health is the concept that the health of natural systems and the health of human civilization are intertwined. We can't separate them. So the future of our health on this planet will be really linked to the health of the natural systems that support our society. We rely on our planet for many things, from energy to shelter, and the Earth is our only home. But the most important link to the land is the food we eat. A warming planet, expanding population and increased competition for land are all taking their toll on our planet and its ability to produce the food we need. Our soils have only been around for 10,000 years and we've got to stop treating them like dirt. I asked Andy what implications these challenges pose for our food system. Well, the concern is, of course, that climate change is going to decrease crop yield, um, particularly in tropical and subtropical regions in the near term. Uh, But most studies have focused on cereals, cereal grains, um, staple crops. Recent work we've been doing has been looking at fruit and vegetables, which, as you say, are really rather neglected, but very, very important because they help protect against a range of diseases, cardiovascular diseases, for example, and some types of cancer. And we know that not just climate change, but some of the other environmental changes that are occurring are likely to reduce the yield of these fruit and vegetables. We also know that increasing carbon dioxide uh, in the the air as a result of the burning of fossil fuels in particular is changing the nutritional content of foods and making them in many ways less nutritious. So the danger is that we may see a decrease in yield of some of these crops that are really important for human health, and we also may see a decline in nutritional quality. And that means that we're going to have to think about how we can protect the diets and the food supplies, particularly for more disadvantaged populations, but really could affect all of us. So what we call micronutrients like iron and zinc are important for human health. Say iron is important to prevent anemia. Zinc is also important for health. And many people around the world suffer from deficiency of those or, or the, on the borderline of deficiency. So anything that reduces the availability of these important minerals can push people further into ill health. And so understanding how these environmental changes are likely to impact in the future, but also importantly counteracting them. What can we do to improve 
the nutritional content of these foods in an attempt to counteract some of the effects of these environmental changes? These will be very important questions for research in, in, in the near future. Planetary health is not just about what we grow and take from the land, but also what we put onto it. Dr Howie Frumkin, head of the Our Planet, Our Health programme at the Wellcome Trust, is particularly concerned about pollution and the impacts of the chemicals that we release onto our environment and our bodies. He explained why we should all be worried about toxic chemicals. We've created a world that's different than the world our great-grandparents lived in, and that's true in many ways. The climate, the ocean chemistry, and chemicals. So since the Second World War, the organic chemical industry has invented and produced large numbers of chemicals for many uses, making plastics, making pesticides, uh, making electrical capacitor fluids, and, and on and on. Now many of these chemicals have been designed to be persistent. They don't break down. They're organic chemicals and they're widespread in the environment, so they're called persistent organic pollutants. And we're just now beginning to learn what they do to our health. Many of them... What, what do they do, P these POPs? Many of these chemicals mimic natural hormones in our bodies. And so they track along in the same way that the hormones would. They trigger endocrine effects. That means effects on our reproductive health, on our thyroid function, on growth hormone, on many of the systems that govern our bodies. The effects of that are becoming clear. We're just doing the research now, but we're seeing girls have their first periods earlier in life than was ever the case before. We're seeing infertility on the rise in many places. We're seeing sperm counts drop. And it's very difficult even to understand this because so many chemicals operate at once. But if you're a scientist doing the research, you typically study one chemical at a time. So we've got kind of a chemical soup. It affects wildlife, it affects humans, and probably what we need to do, even as we work to understand it, is move toward reducing the use of these chemicals and reducing long-term environmental contamination. So what you're saying is we're performing a giant experiment on our Earth and on ourselves, and we have no idea what we're doing, what the effects of that are. We can see certain effects, but we can't see the full picture. That's exactly right. And that's really why we need to adopt the precautionary approach then. I think that's right. And you know, many health parameters are getting better over time. Cardiovascular disease is moving in the right direction, but Many health endpoints are moving in the wrong direction. Autoimmune diseases, endocrine diseases, some cancers. We don't fully understand a lot of those things, but you certainly have to consider the possibility that these chemical exposures that are ubiquitous in human populations are a contributor. The health of the environment also has a significant impact on our mental health. In Greenland, recent research found unprecedented levels of stress from global heating and climate change because summer ice melt is disrupting traditional ways of life that have existed for centuries. They call it ecological grief. Professor Laura Fleming, director of the European Centre for Environment and Human Health at the University of Exeter, spoke about the positive health benefits that living in coastal areas can bring. So even in England, you can already see how climate and other environmental change is impacting, as you've noted, for example, history recently of flooding, but also the fact that we have increasing research that shows that interacting with coastal areas, blue-green spaces is good for our health and well-being, 
means to me that we need to value these areas even more than we have in the past. And since they are particularly coastal areas around the world, islands like the UK are particularly at risk with climate and other environmental change, I hope that we'll be able to value them very quickly <laughs> so that we can protect them and realize that that will help our health and well-being into the future, not just now. And there's a bit of a gap in the research, isn't there, Laura? I mean, it sort of tends, this planetary health topic is, it's not environment, it's not health, it's not public health. Uh, the private sector doesn't want to fund it because there's no new wonder drug. Um, but I, I've read something that said, you know, if, um, if you cycle, I think it was one and a half miles a day, it's the equivalent of a 16 or 20% reduction in breast cancer risk. If that was a pill, mm. you'd be popping it uh, yeah. every day and it would be costing, yeah. the NHS would be pouring millions into it. Yeah. How can we, get more research across across these boundaries because the siloed approach isn't working is it well just like business government and all organizations science is also very siloed and traditionally the environmental community has and the health communities have not really interacted i think there is a new push towards inter or transdisciplinary training and also a little bit towards funding groups like welcome are pushing that envelope and forcing researchers to get in the same room and work together across those communities and also increasing the training that they receive so that this is something that's seen as positive and and it's easy to do. But I think the other piece of it is not just the researchers siloed among themselves so that they, um, that they interact with the communities that they're working with and that they do try to bring industry into the research they're doing so that it is really transdisciplinary across different sectors. To treat the problems our planet faces, we need to understand the symptoms. So we need research across disciplines and sharing information and data to come up with solutions for the planet. Howie spoke of the importance of sharing that data. Well, there's more data being collected now than ever before, and all of us, wittingly or unwittingly, are contributing to that data collection. So when you use your supermarket customer card, when you do a Google search, when you walk around with your, uh, your smartphone in your pocket, with your location being tracked, all of that information is being collected. It has commercial value. It is bought and sold in real time. And that's the reason why, for example, when you pull up a search on your smartphone, you'll see advertisements directly targeting something you might have been thinking about or shopping for in the not-so-distant past. It's enormously valuable information. Mm -hmm. From information like that, we could potentially learn things like which neighborhoods in a city are most or least healthy? Which neighborhoods in a city make people feel best? Uh, how are levels of air quality or levels of noise affecting how we feel? But a lot of that information is in private hands. Uh, interestingly, we are enormously protective of our privacy when it comes to our health data, and for good reason. But many people are downright exhibitionist when it comes to their personal information. So rethinking what privacy is all about Rethinking the fact that some information, if we were able to collect it and analyze it with proper safeguards for privacy, would be enormously informative for us and help us make better decisions. We're entering this age of new availability of data. Our concepts of privacy haven't quite caught up, but we certainly have big important questions we need to answer and the data would help. So we could get an NHS app, couldn't we, and basically get it to link up to our Ocado or Morrison's online shopping, it could link up to our health data, it could link up and actually we could, buy, if we had an NHS app, link it 
into all of um, into all of that stuff and, and give it permission. I'd rather give my permission to the NHS than I would to Facebook or uh, um, Google. What do you think about yes, that? Yes, I mean, theoretically it might be possible in the future and it could also link to kind of our exposure to air pollution and other environmental um, uh, exposures. But the, the issue there is in order to be useful, it would have to be analysed by an aggregate, by researchers. So you would need to give permission mm. to researchers to link your environmental consumption and health data. And at present it's very difficult for researchers to get permission mm. to analyse that kind of data. So even when it becomes available, if it's not, if we can't access it, then it's not going to be valuable. So we do need to think uh, more carefully, I think, about you know, what we're prepared to give up, how we're prepared to sacrifice some level of confidentiality if there are clear safeguards in order to advance human knowledge that in the end will benefit us and our children and grandchildren. In the UK, nearly 85% of the population live in cities and poor city design contributes to bad outdoor and indoor air quality, promotes sedentary lifestyles, mean we all spend our time stuck in cars instead of walking and cycling, and it damages our health and our environment. Good city design can make a huge difference. How those cities are designed is going to really matter to minimise the heat island effect, to mitigate against heat waves, but also to build in active travel. Which yeah. cities do you think are really doing well? Well, we know that Copenhagen, for example, we've used Copenhagen as the kind of exemplar for some of our research. So we did some research some years ago saying what would happen if the whole urban population of England and Wales walked and cycled like the average person in Copenhagen. And we showed that there'd be big benefits that would amount in cost terms to reducing the cost to the NHS of about, by about £17 billion over a 20-year period, but increasing over time, because some of these benefits take a little time to, to, to phase in. And why is that? Well, because, for example, if you want to prevent some types of cancer which seem to be related to sedentary lifestyles, then that takes time for cancer to, to develop. Or if you're preventing diabetes, you don't prevent it overnight, it prevent, you prevent it you know, over time as people's weight falls and their physicality improves. So uh, there is big benefits to health from redesigning cities and making it easier to walk and cycle safely or use public transport, which often involves a bit of physical activity. The warnings about climate change and the actions we need to take can often be seen as fear-mongering and gloomy. That doesn't inspire us to action or to make the changes we need. So how do we communicate these changes in a way that doesn't sound like the nanny state or the end of days? I asked Howie Frumpkin. It's a wonderful question and there's a good answer. We've been talking about some threats that sound pretty grim and frightening, climate change, chemical contamination and so on. But the good news lurking behind all of this is that tackling these problems is not a story of deprivation, it's a story of opportunity. Mm -hmm. If we shift from riding in vehicles to walking and cycling, we get healthier. If we shift away from using plastics, we may sacrifice a little convenience, but you know what? Our reproductive and hormonal health will get better. If we slow down a little bit in our lives, we have more time to be with friends and family combating loneliness. If we design cities to be more convivial places, they're more pleasant places to live and we're happier and healthier. So all of these challenges, as we address them, paint a story of opportunity and of better lives for all of us. And that's an important theme to our communication. There you have it. Safeguarding our planet's health is good for our health, our food system, our water supplies, the fight against disease and our own mental well-being.
This work should start where most of us live, in cities. Better cities can make us happier, healthy and more productive and help us save the planet. From what we put on our plate, to how we travel, where we live and the data we share. Actions at every part and stage of our life will make the difference. We only have one home, we should look after it. Emergency on Planet Earth was presented by Mary Cray and produced by Sam Airy, with music by Sasha Ender. Our guests this week were Professor Laura Fleming, Professor Sir Andy Haynes and Professor Howie Frumpkin. Thanks for listening.